I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 16th, 2020. Coming up, we look again at COVID wastewater testing at CU, this time by joining a wastewater testing team. A single sample here is reflective of uh, hundreds of people's contribution. And we learn why the tick disease, Rocky Mountain spotted beaver, might become more common due to global warming. In these outbreaks that are happening in Arizona and northern Mexico at this point, sort of western North America, the case fatality rates are much higher, like upward of 18%. Last month, we shared the work of CU engineering professor Creston Mansfield. Mansfeld and a team of engineering student volunteers screen campus storms for COVID-19 by using an early warning system that screens all the residents of each storm all at once. The screening method can raise the alert about SARS-CoV-2 outbreaks up to a week before people are likely to have symptoms that would lead them to seek out medical help. When the system flags a dorm, then the university can target students in that dorm for individual saliva tests to identify just who is sick. In these ways, the early warning system can find outbreaks more quickly while conserving testing supplies. As for what the university tests to get this early warning, it's wastewater. The system's been in place since the start of the school year. Recently, we joined Mansfeld on the CU Boulder campus as he and his students did maintenance on the wastewater testing system. Here's what it's like. Hello, how's it going? Engineering professor Creston Mansfeld heads out with students to start an early warning system on the campus for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. The warning system involves a plastic bin and what can be found below this sewage manhole. As for the project's name... Well, we call our project Project Half Shell because it's a homage to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles hanging out in the sewers. That's engineering professor Creston Mansfeld hanging out with his students above a sewage manhole on the University of Colorado Boulder campus. Mansfeld's team all wear masks to guard against COVID-19. Plus, they're dressed for dirty work in overalls and work gloves. There's some heavy lifting up ahead, too. Exactly. Well, actually, I think this is really good cross-training. Okay. So what I'm going to do is just, like, lift it up. That manhole cover weighs over 100 kilograms. That's well over 200 pounds. Mansfeld lifts the lid. Okay. Then points a flashlight into the hole. Ten feet underground, a concrete ditch carries a glistening stream of sewage water. So what's flowing through here is actually domestic wastewater. Things we send down the drain, either through the toilets or through showers or laundry systems. Basically, any drains that are coming out end up flowing into these river networks that exist underneath most municipalities and cities. Here, we're most interested in what's coming out of the toilets and feces, because that seems to be where individuals can shed the SARS-CoV-2 virus here. Engineering student Jessica Darby says checking wastewater this way gives an early warning about COVID-19 infections. COVID is in your intestines, and so even if you don't have symptoms or before it actually is more of a disease or infection, it can be found in your intestines. So if you shed it into the sewer system, you can kind of determine 
if people have it, even if it's before they have symptoms or if they don't ever have symptoms. To test this dorm's wastewater for COVID-19, Mansfeld's team unlocks a large plastic bin that's right beside the manhole. They open its plastic lid. Inside is a two-liter jerry can and some very long tubes. The team snakes the tubes down until they touch the sewage water. Back inside the plastic tub, they switch on a little pump. Mansfeld directs them to close and lock the plastic tub. If you want to just close that up, we are actually good to be done. We got a site operational. Once each day, the Project Half Shell team will unlock the tub and take a few vials of wastewater over to the lab to screen an entire dorm for COVID-19. Mansfeld says that testing wastewater this way saves on testing time and testing supplies. A single sample here is reflective of uh, hundreds of people's contribution. Engineering student Darby says she likes being a Project Half Shell team member. There's plenty of fascinating research that my department does, but um, especially now that we have all of the pandemic and it's really affecting our lives and has been for almost an entire year, that I feel it's really important to actually do my part in a sense where I can help not only learn about epidemiology and ways that they're tracing it, but I can also make sure that the campus is having um, more of a safe time while we have people here because uh, if there wasn't a team doing this, we would be more shots in the dark because our the kind of spit monitoring that we do, we only have a limited number of tests, so when they actually find COVID in the sewer systems, it kind of tells us where to put our, uh, our samples. this fall, data from the team warned the campus about a rising spike in COVID-19 cases. Individual saliva tests of dorm students then identified who was sick, and it was quite a few. This led the administration to actually invoke some of the social distancing options that were available. That was in October, and at that time, Mansfeld said that the surveillance data being done by both CU Boulder and the County of Boulder are reasons that restrictions on CU students in mid-October were allowed to be relaxed. Back in mid-October, Mansfeld had said that the contrast between the campus during the few weeks of lockdown and how it felt after the lockdown was striking. Out of all of the stress that this pandemic has induced, and all of the concern, what the surge and then also the response of the campus to the surge really showed is the community's commitment to actually tackle a pandemic. Um, and it's just something where walking around during the entire social distancing is you could hear everyone going about their lives within the dorm structure. So you could hear people playing video games. You could hear somebody who left their alarm on, who obviously left campus, but it was just ringing for seven days. The campus itself was still alive, but behind closed doors. There is this intangible element that is what a university is beyond anything that exists as a physical structure. And I think that's one thing that it was both sad kind of experiencing that on campus, but it was also hopeful because all of these people were really putting in a lot of work 
in order to get back to that, to be able to get back to exploring the campus and exploring the university as this interactive and challenging space. COVID cases are up again. Boulder County data shows that the vast majority of the county's new COVID diagnoses are not associated with anyone affiliated with CU Boulder. Still, Boulder's overall rising level of COVID, along with a smaller increase of cases on campus, is why yesterday CU Boulder went back to fully remote learning again, meaning no more in-person classes. This decision to go remote yesterday was ahead of the originally planned shift to remote that was going to happen after the fall break. CU Boulder states that the decision is based on the continued projection of a rise in COVID-19 cases. As the leader of CU's wastewater surveillance team, Creston Mansfeld, says when the campus locks down, it's awfully quiet. Throughout even lunchtime, you could walk through the arts quad and there's just no one. Mansfeld gives some perspective about COVID by pointing out that in other countries, there are other pandemics going on. Some of these, wastewater testing can help. Uh, well, we actually have multiple pandemics going on right now. It's just that we only talk about SARS-CoV-2, because we're actually in technically either the seventh or eighth uh, cholera pandemic. And also HIV is still considered a pandemic and all these things are going on simultaneously. Yeah. yeah, so wastewater actually is a good way to test cholera and there's been successful applications of this wastewater testing program for other viruses such as the polio virus. As for COVID-19, Mansfeld says the wastewater testing can be used to give an early warning at more than college dorms. Wherever you have mass uh, amount of people in a specific building, so at nursing homes, at high schools, this potentially would provide a lower cost way to monitor a signal for viruses such as SARS-CoV-2 or other pathogens over time. The wastewater treatment plant services hundreds of thousands of people. And so then their question is, well, can they start dividing out their, their entire sewer grid to really start explore uh, and understand where that signal at the 300,000 is really coming from upstream? So I think that'll be a, a very informative and it's very powerful for them to be doing that. And it's incredible to live in a community where the wastewater treatment plant is that gung-ho to actually start doing things like that. Yeah, it's a great community to live in for wastewater. I didn't know I was coming into a great wastewater community, but it, it is out here. Mansfeld's team plans to continue their COVID monitoring at CU Boulder. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Let's take a break from talking about COVID-19 and discuss what is, at the moment, a less ominous infectious disease, although it might be a creepier one. The disease is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. It comes from the bite of that blood-sucking insect known as the tick. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is not a major threat like covid but it is significant, and its incidence is rising dramatically. A few thousand people in the U.S. now get the disease every year. Some barely realize they've got it. For a few people, the disease is deadly. And, for some reason, 
The number of cases of Rocky Mountain spotted fever has increased substantially in warm places that have a lot of dogs, a lot of people packed together, and a lot of days over 100 degrees. These outbreaks have involved the brown dog tick that likes to live in buildings and on dogs. Recently, the ticks have seemed especially interested in biting not only dogs, but people. In the last decade, dog ticks in a small Mexican border town infected several thousand people with Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and a higher percentage of them than usual died, especially children. The disease is also more common now north of the border, in the U.S. Why is the brown dog tick infecting more people with this disease? Laura Bacchus is a UC Davis scientist. Her research shows that as temperatures go up from the 70s to 100 degrees, the brown dog tick becomes twice as likely to bite a person than a dog. And despite all this, Bacchus says, I love ticks. Um, And I love ticks because they are a nexus of disease. They connect diseases between humans and animals and the environment. I'm really shocked that you love ticks. Is it because you're a scientist that you love ticks? Or is it because you're just, you know, personally fond of those very icky creatures? No offense. Part of it is from a science perspective. They are really, really fascinating. They're also easy to look at, fun to look at. They are gorgeous under the microscope. But from a science perspective and a disease perspective, they're also really, really fascinating. They're really fascinating because there's many of them. They act as a link of disease between humans and animals and are also very susceptible to environmental conditions. So they really bring together this idea of One Health, where you have this interconnection between humans, animals, and the environment. Well, that explains to me why you are fascinated by ticks, and I'm going to confess to you why I was fascinated by your research about Rocky Mountain spotted fever and how it used to be that dogs were more likely to get it, but with rising climate change temperatures, it's looking like ticks are showing more preference for biting humans, and this is a serious disease that's on the rise. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is actually a common disease or a more common disease in the Rocky Mountains. So it's something that really matters to us. So tell me more about your research, because you're finding that this Rocky Mountain spotted fever is more likely to come from ticks to humans, because the warmer it gets, the more that these brown dog ticks like to bite humans? Yeah, we think that that might be the case. Rocky Mountain spotted fever was originally discovered in the Rocky Mountains, and that's why it's called Rocky Mountain spotted fever. But It has, since that time, primarily been considered a disease of the eastern seaboard, the eastern United States. But there's been a resurgence in the western, in western North America, in Arizona and in Mexico. One of the concerns is why is this happening now? Why are these outbreaks happening when they hadn't happened previously? We haven't had cases in these regions previously. So what changes are occurring to sort of result in Rocky Mountain spotted fever going from dogs or from some other species into the ticks and then into the people. And we know that ticks are very responsive to their environment. Their survival is controlled by their environment. Their numbers are controlled by the hosts that are present and the environment. The question was, is there something we can use to predict or something that would explain why humans might be getting bitten more often, why we might be having spillover of these, this disease to humans? Okay, so Laura Bacchus, it is 
the case then that more people are being bitten by these ticks that have Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and you decided to see how much it correlates with warmer temperatures. So you did a very innovative experiment, which is also a little bit of a creepy experiment. Can you explain what you did? Yeah. So we designed a device um, called an olfactometer. So olfactometers, we did not invent the olfactometer. An olfactometer is something that is used um, with other insects, has been used with ticks before, where you have a scent on either side and you see which way the insect or tick moves towards one side or towards the other side. I'm picturing something where there is a tube yep. in the middle where a bug can go one direction or the other into one scent environment or the other scent environment. Usually something that fits on a desktop is the way that you test these things. But your clue about what you did is that usually these olfactory, what did you call it again? An olfactometer. Olfactometer, a way to measure a tick's preference for one smell versus the other. Usually it's fairly small, but you wanted to test a dog and a human. So what did you do? We went big size. We built this device with a box on either side connected by a long, clear plastic tube. And so the boxes were big, big enough for a large dog and a human to each sit in one very comfortably. The plastic tube running between them is where we put the ticks. So there was mesh on either side so that the ticks can't actually reach the human or the dog. We didn't want anybody to get bitten in this study. I am so relieved to hear that you put the mesh there because when I was looking at the pictures of the dog that you fed the treats to so that it would stay in the box that was its box, and then you put the person in the other side, I was imagining that the person would have to sit there while these ticks started crawling on it and biting it. So it was more just to see which direction of the tube the ticks would go toward. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Based on sort of scent and the chemicals that are being produced by either the dog or the human, which direction they'll go, which they'll prefer. What you found out was something about how with higher temperatures, the ticks go, hmm, that dog doesn't smell so good anymore, but the human's smelling better. I want to go bite the human. Yeah, that is what we found. Was that a surprise to you? It was not necessarily a surprise. Some of the nuances of the study were a surprise, and the magnitude of effect, how big that effect was, was a little bit of a surprise. We tested two different kinds of brown dog tick. It was really the tropical lineage, which we find closer to the equator, that showed this really pronounced effect where we went from sort of a room temperature condition where they definitely preferred the dogs, which is what we would expect. They're adapted to feed on dogs. They like to feed on dogs. So at room temperature, that's what they did. But then when we took that up to about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, they switched. Fewer went towards the dog and more went towards the humans. And that was about 2.5 times. 2.5 times more ticks went toward the human than the dog once you got up to 100 degrees. Well, this tells me that on a hot day in the Rocky Mountains or in California or any place else, if I want to go out hiking, I better tuck my socks into my pant legs or something like that. I mean, how do you keep ticks from climbing on you? Yeah. So the thing about the brown dog tick, Interpocephalus sanguineus, um, is that it is not the kind of tick that you tend to encounter when you're out hiking. You're probably, you're not likely to run into the brown dog tick. There's certainly many other ticks that you might run into. But the brown dog tick is a tick that likes sort of the built environment. It likes kennels. It will live in, live in cracks in houses. 
it'll live in nature, sort of naturey areas as well. But we tend to see it in areas where we have lots of dogs and structures. Oh, so if a dog goes to a kennel and they're outside at the kennel and it's a hot day, there might be some very strong reasons to check your dog for ticks. Because if a dog tick is on a dog on a hot day and you're nearby, it might say, hmm, there's something even tastier than the dog. It might. Or if you're living in an area where you have a dog that might have ticks and maybe you don't know that your dog has ticks and there are ticks inside or near your home and it's hot, they might decide that, yeah, they're going to, they're more likely to bite you. Now, how serious is this Rocky Mountain spotted fever for a dog and how serious is this for a human? So Rocky Mountain spotted fever in dogs, no clinical signs. You don't know that they've been exposed or infected all the way to being fatal. In humans, it is the same, where some humans are probably exposed and, and never, never know that they were exposed. Historically, our data shows that in the United States, at least, fatality rates from Rocky Mountain spotted fever are about 1% to 2%. In these outbreaks that are happening in Arizona and northern Mexico at this point, sort of Western North America, the case fatality rates are much higher, like upward of 18%. And it particularly affects children. And even when death is not the outcome, um, there can be really, really serious long-term health effects. If somebody notices that they had been bitten by a tick and they get treated with antibiotics in the first one, two, or three weeks, then they're likely not to have any long-lasting effects. Have I accurately stated that, or do you want to refine what I just said? So that's for Lyme disease. Rocky Mountain spotted fever is different. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, you need to start treatment within five days of starting to have any symptoms. So it is treatable with antibiotics, like with doxycycline. But similarly to COVID and many other diseases, it first presents with really not specific signs. We call it spotted fever. And if you get that spotted rash with it, then it's easier to identify. But often it just starts with a fever, with just not feeling well. And so if antibiotics are not started in that first five days because you don't know necessarily that Rocky Mountain spotted fever is what you have, then it's much more likely to be fatal. Well, Laura Bacchus, that is very bad news. It's very disquieting to hear how easily this could become a serious disease if you don't catch it early and you only have five days to catch it. If you go to a doctor and say, gosh, I'm wondering if I have Rocky Mountain spotted fever, can they confirm that? Is there a test they can do to say, my goodness, you do, or no, you don't? There are tests to do, but they typically take longer than that first five days. And they're generally in sort of immunology-based. If there's a high level of concern that you do have Rocky Mountain spotted fever, you typically need to start that treatment before you're able to get those test results back. Well, thank you for explaining all of this about a, a rather creepy disease from an insect called tick that you actually are very admiring of. But I understand from a scientific reason why you feel that way. Boy, this is yet another reason to say, let's slow down this global climate change and the warming. It is. It is. And it really highlights one of the unexpected consequences that we might see with climate change and with increasing high temperatures, incidences of high temperatures. There are many, many potential outcomes that we might see, and this is an important one to consider. You actually mean that it's an important one in that there are increasing cases of Rocky Mountain spotted fever among people in areas that are warm. And uh, that's not what we want. That is absolutely correct. It's a nasty disease. It, it happens in horrible outbreaks and it affects children 
and has long lasting effects that we really just don't want to see. Well, this brown dog tick is a problem because it can create Rocky Mountain spotted fever in people. And it, if it gets hot, it likes to bite people even more than it likes to bite dogs. But in places like the Rocky Mountains in Boulder, Colorado, are there other ticks that can bite people this way? And do they like warmer temperatures for biting people as well? I am not an expert on ticks of the Rocky Mountains, even though I spent quite a long time living in Colorado. But the dermacenter ticks are present in the Rocky Mountains. Dermacenter variabilis is another type of dog tick, and dermacenter occidentalis, which is the Rocky Mountain wood tick. They will carry diseases. At this point, we don't have recent evidence. I don't think of them um, carrying Rocky Mountain spotted fever, recently at least. But they are ticks that can carry diseases, and there are other rickettsial diseases that they can carry as well. As this gets studied more, it may be discovered that even more ticks decide when the temperatures get warm that humans are just the best thing to bite, or better than a dog at least. Yeah, so whether or not temperature affects other tick species the same way as what we saw in this study with um, the brown dog tick is remains to be seen. And did you test just one person? I mean, could it be that just these ticks really liked the smell of one person in particular when the, the temperature got hot? Or did you test enough people to say, nope, it's pretty much across the board. It doesn't matter what deodorant they're wearing or anything like that. There's something about when the temperature goes up, ticks like to bite people. We used multiple people and multiple dogs because absolutely that is a concern. Just like you see with mosquitoes where one friend might get bitten more, you get bitten less. Um, that certainly might happen with ticks. So we used a com we used um, multiple dogs and multiple humans in different combinations. Looks like you thought of everything. Well, if you figure out a way to have the climate be a little cooler so that these ticks just keep biting dogs, let me know. I will, but I, I'd like them to bite fewer dogs too. I don't want dogs getting sick either. So it's a, <laughs> I, I would like ticks to stay where they are and not spreading disease. We've been speaking with UC Davis scientist Laura Bacchus. Bacchus's research about the blood-sucking animal known as the brown dog tick, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and the influence of rising temperatures with global warming has just been published by the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from local guitarist Lynn Patrick, Raymond Scott, and Night of the Living Dead. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.